0: On this episode, we'll continue our discussion about the impact of the emerging technology of pulse field ablation on the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tomas Villanueva, Senior Principal of Operations and Quality of Vision and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is a leader in the cardiology field, Dr. Thomas Munger, cardiac electrophysiologist, cardiologist, and chair of the Heart Rhythm Division at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Munger, welcome back. Thank you for having me back. Let's dive right into atrial fibrillation. So we see commercials about it for medications for it all the time. As our population gets older and, quite frankly, sicker, we start seeing more of these issues occurring. So can you first describe what atrial fibrillation is for our listeners?
1: Sure, excellent. So just an anecdote, I asked one of the senior cardiologists here about fifteen years ago what he did with atrial fibrillation back in the nineteen sixties, and he said I ignored it because there was nothing you could do about it. And fortunately we have a lot of things to do about it now. It increases with age, AFib. For people in their fifties and sixties, it's about three to five percent of the population. As you move to the nineties, it's about twenty to thirty percent. There's various mechanisms for it, and the older you get, I think more of these mechanisms play into it. So there's a genetic component we found at least in a third of patients Hemodynamics plays a role. Hypertension is the number one risk factor for it other than aging in the country. So heart failure, valve disease, sleep apnea, these are all major risk factors that actually stretch the atrium out and then lead to the pulmonary veins, which seem to be where a lot of the triggers are for this, originate. And then inflammation can play a role. We see that post-pericarditis, after pneumonias, gallbladder attacks, we call that provoked atrial fib. After cardiac surgery, it's very common. Up to 40% of patients will have it transiently. And then as patients get older, we see more of the senescent varieties of it. So beyond the age of 70, we do start seeing apoptotic fibrosis develop in the atrium. And this produces scars, which actually make the atrial fib more likely to become permanent as patients age. Atrial fib, as many of the listeners will know, is associated with stroke with the appropriate risk profile. And so for people over 75, it's not atherosclerosis. It's actually AFib's the number one cause for thrombotic stroke. Atrial fib can also be associated with heart failure, particularly with fast heart rates. There are some signals in the data suggesting there's a linkage to dementia in patients who are in permanent AFib late in life and perhaps more mitral and tricuspid cuspid regurgitation if they're in permanent AFib, which can lead to problems with heart failure later. So there's things that are well-established and others that we're looking at now that may be a problem for patients who are in the rhythm chronically.
0: There's always been this debate. I graduated from medical school in 1991, so I kept on hearing the debate of treating the rhythm versus their atrial fibrillation, try to bring them back to that normal dance, normal sinus rhythm, versus just treating the rape, making sure they don't go fast. And we use medications for that. Can you comment on that? And then why ablation is seen more as a therapy?
1: Sure, absolutely. So when you see the AFib patient, of course... Do they need rate control? I think a lot of them will if their rates are fast with activity to prevent heart failure and symptoms. That can be accomplished with beta blockers or calcium blockers, Digitalis, Clonidine. Those are drugs that can be used for rate control. Even amiodarone has a indication in our guidelines if everything else has failed, even though that's an antirhythmic, it can be used for rate. Rate control, for many patients, it makes them asymptomatic, and for many patients, it makes them feel worse, particularly the younger patients, I think, who aren't hypertensive, maybe run low blood pressures anyway. A lot of them run relatively low rates when they're in sinus rhythm. They don't tolerate the beta and calcium blockers all that well. So, antiarrhythmic drugs, of course, are an option for rate management. And there was a trial called the Affirm trial, came out probably 20 years ago, that randomized rate versus rhythm. There wasn't any difference in the stroke or death rates in that trial. So I think historically, we've tried rate control on a lot of patients, but in more recent times, I think both in the ablation literature as well as the non-ablation literature, there has been seen this group of patients that probably still do better in rhythm control. They would be people with HEF-PEF, people with mitral valve disease, the younger patients who won't tolerate drugs as well, but also are probably a lot more active than grandfather is when he's 82. And so these... These are people that want to get out hiking and doing other physical activities where the rate control is many times extremely difficult to achieve. So those groups I think about for the rate rhythm control right out of the gate. Antiarrhythmic drugs, quinidine was the first one released in around 1918, and there's about six or seven other drugs that we have available. Class one drugs, the most frequent ones used now would be propafenone and flecainide. They're good drugs or it can start outpatient efficacy for preventing all AFib at two years is about 40 to 50 percent. Similarly, with class three drugs, which we use in structural heart disease, these would be drugs like dofetilide, sotalol, Trineterone. There are also similar effectiveness, but they have less of a, a profile in patients who are actually have structural heart disease. Amiodarone doesn't have an FDA labeling for AFib. It's only indicated for ventricular arrhythmias, but we all use it. It's the most efficacious one we have. But there's a lot of surveillance that you have to do when you put someone on that drug, and it's not ideal for a lot of younger patients in particular. So, current guidelines for use of an antiarrhythmic versus ablation, generally the guidelines are still suggesting an antiarrhythmic be trialed first to see if it's effective or tolerated, and that's the way the guideline still is written. But I'm suspecting that's going to change after trials like Cabana and EAST have come out showing equivalence, and particularly with some of the new technologies coming out in ablation. One thing that's been learned recently with ablation the last few years is the earlier you treat the patients, probably the more likely they're going to do well with that treatment. So I think a lot of us have moved towards offering ablation at least equal footing with offering an antiarrhythmic drug in this younger population. And again, young's always in the eyes of the physician, but I think anyone under 65, I would bring that up as an option right from the start.
0: And I couldn't agree more. So we see that ablation is becoming more commonplace for treatment and particularly for our younger patients, but there's also a change in energy source. And there's been some discussions about that. Can you fill us in on that?
1: Sure. So let's talk about effectiveness of ablation first again comparing it to those antiarrhythmic drugs I just mm-hmm. stated. So typically 2 years freedom of, from AFib 70% is a reasonable number. The two energy sources we have out there right now would be RF ablation, radio frequency ablation, which is basically a thermal ablation. It involves ablation catheter that then transmits an electrical current back to a back patch on the patient. It's akin to microwave energy, if you will. It produces a thermal gradient through the muscle, heats the tissue at the tip with the irrigated tip systems, That is, that pass saline out the tip. You can get more cooling at the very tip of the catheter, but it provides more convective heating deep in the tissue. And so you can create thermal lesions with the RF, and that's been the mainstay of ablation in the last 30-plus years. The other energy source that was introduced in the late 90s would be cryo. The surgeons had been using this for quite some time for doing their ablation in the ORs if they weren't using the knife. Cryo is nice because it's a little more stable. The catheter sticks to the muscle. It doesn't create as deep a lesion as RF, so you have to be more precise with it. And the tissues are typically frozen down to minus 80 degrees Celsius. For atrial fib, a balloon catheter was introduced several years ago where you can put a balloon in each one of the pulmonary veins, which is where the AFib emanates in about 90% of patients to isolate those veins. It's not practical to use cryo really if you're going to be doing more extensive ablation for persistence. But again, my practice, I use probably 90% RF and 10% cryo, reserving the cryo more for the paroxysmal patient's but since I do a lot of redos and a lot of those types of patients in a referral practice, it's mostly RF. Now, really, the efficacy of ablation has not really changed in the last 20 to 25 years. Looking at the data that we were generating internally back in the 1990s, coming up to the fire and ice trial, which came out in 2016, comparing cryo to RF, the efficacy really hasn't changed that much. Safety has improved over that time, some, but we still deal with esophago atrial fistulas and pulmonary vein stenosis, damage to coronary arteries. These are all things that still are out there as complications with these energy sources we've been using. So there is a lot of excitement about the next energy source, which is pulse field ablation, PFA, or another term for it would be electroporation or irreversible electroporation. This is a unique energy source that has now gone through about a half a dozen trials. There's some papers out there. Small meta-analysis, there's been a few thousand patients treated with it, but it looks promising.
0: Dr. Munger, great discussion, and we'll continue in our next episode. And to our listeners, you can contact Dr. Munger at his email address in the resource section of our podcast page. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me in our email, modernpracticepodcast at We also posted the link in our resource section. And please join us for other modern practice podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tomas Villanueva. Thanks for listening.